0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the recent elections in Italy, Brazil, and Sweden, where far-right parties are either taking power or looking to maintain it, as well as the parallels to our own politics, including moderate conservatives helping to legitimize the far-right while delegitimizing elections themselves. Clips today are from The Mehdi Hassan Show, The Jacobin Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, In the Thick, Democracy Now!, and the Muckrake Political Podcast, with additional members-only clips from The Jacobin Show and The Rachel Maddow Show. And by the way, the midterms are right around the corner, so be sure to check out the show notes for our Midterms Minute section, highlighting key races across the country and how to get involved. Today's focus is on the toss-up Senate races and those leaning precariously Democratic or Republican. Remember, voting is not enough, so get involved and help get out the vote. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a couple of examples of how small misunderstandings can result in wildly wrong conclusions. In this case, particularly about racial and cultural segregation. In the wake of
1: last week's Italian elections, Giorgia Maloney, leader of the far-right, neo-fascist Brothers of Italy party, is poised to become that country's next prime minister. And Republicans here in the U.S. have been falling over themselves to congratulate her on her win and identify themselves with the neo-fascist. Here are former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Republican Senator Tom Cotton, both congratulating Maloney as a fellow conservative, apparently. And when an old speech of Maloney's decrying financial speculators, yes, financial speculators, I think we all know who she's referring to there, went viral in right-wing circles, Republican Senator Ted Cruz tweeted, spectacular, even though his own wife is a managing director at what some would say is the grand champion of actual financial speculators, Goldman Sachs. My favorite right-wing tweet about Maloney, though, was this one from an employee of Breitbart who decided to dabble in a bit of identity politics, suggesting you're for the patriarchy if you dare criticize Italy's first female prime minister, and also tweeting hilariously calling her Mussolini just because she's Italian is racist. To which I responded, how about comparing her to Mussolini because she has praised Mussolini, currently echoes Mussolini, and runs a party that both includes Mussolini's heirs and is itself an heir to the Italian social movement, which was formed by supporters of Mussolini in 1946. How about that? By the way, did you see how I managed to squeeze all that relevant biographical information about Maloney into 140 characters or whatever the Twitter limit is these days? Because a lot of mainstream media pieces running into the hundreds or thousands of words Weren't able to do that, sadly. And I'll be honest, I expected the Republican right to embrace Maloney. They are at best, to quote the president, semi-fascist themselves these days. What's been so depressing is to see so much of the quote-unquote liberal media, the mainstream media, the MSM, giving a pass to Maloney or playing down her and her party's fascist roots, focusing more on the fact that she's female and less on the fact that she's, you know, fascistic. That has been deeply, deeply depressing to see. There was the uh, Washington Post headline. Georgia Maloney could become Italy's first female prime minister. Here's what to know. Now, here's what you wouldn't know from that headline. You wouldn't know that she has ties to fascism. But hey, she's female. There was the headline in the Financial Times. We can pull that up as well. Likely victory for Italian right portends risks, but no lurch into extremism. Don't worry, no lurch to extremism, even though they just elected card-carrying extremists. But still, hers is a heartwarming tale, isn't it? I kid you not, this was the tweet from Politico Europe. Let's pull up the tweet from Politico Europe. In July 1992, a 15-year-old schoolgirl rang the doorbell at a local branch of the Youth Front, a far-right movement in Rome, and asked to be let in. This weekend, that same schoolgirl could become Italy's next prime minister. Wow. Forget the fascism. Forget the fascism. Focus on the inspiration there. Then there was this op-ed in the New York Times. Georgia Maloney is extreme, but she's no tyrant. Well, that's all right then. At least she's not a tyrant. There was this op-ed in The Atlantic, which argued that the most immediate concern about Italy's new government is not any threat to the country's democratic institutions, still less a return to fascism. Did you notice a trend yet? It's not as bad as you think. This isn't really fascism. Stop the hyperbole and hysteria. It'll all be fine. In fact, I couldn't help but think that I've seen these headlines, these hot takes before. Remember the Washington Post op-ed on the eve of the 2016 U.S. presidential election with this headline? Calm down. We'll be fine no matter who wins. Oh, yeah. Remember the New York Times op-ed with this headline the month before the 2020 presidential election? There will be no Trump coup. So look, I have a humble suggestion for many of my colleagues in the quote unquote liberal media. How about in the year 2022, We stop playing down, minimizing, whitewashing people who literally say or do fascist things. People who want to overturn elections and ban Muslims. People who, as in the case of Italy's next prime minister, spout great replacement theory while running a political party that has a direct connection back to Benito Mussolini himself.
2: Broadly, Fratelli d'Italia is a party uh, that um, uh, centres its message on a very harsh uh, nationalist identity politics, the defence of the natural family. Um, at times in the past, that has even in the recent past, uh, that's involved things like uh, Great Replacement Theory, claiming that the left plans an ethnic substitution of whites in alliance with speculators like George Soros and this kind of thing. Um, but in this campaign, it basically mixed some of that kind of identity politics with the message that actually on the economy and on foreign policy, it won't be too uh, disruptive uh, in terms of who votes for them. Basically, um, I think it's it's kind of too easy to sort of assume that, well, you know, they're this like rebellious force. So therefore they're like mobilizing you know, disgruntled, left behind, uh, you know, working class voters, this kind of thing. Uh, but really, actually, if you look at the the electorate and the overall right wing vote, you know, where the votes have come from, it's quite clear that basically what's happened is that Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, uh, now ha- has basically won votes from its own allies. The overall right wing vote is basically the same as it was in the nineteen nineties and two thousands. Uh, you know, kind of mid forties percent. So in that right. sense, there's not really an expansion of the electorate. Uh, there are, of course, certain changes which have happened as Fratelli D'Italia has become a bigger party. I mean, in 2018, it only got four percent. So it's very then it had a very like identitarian electorate that probably previously belonged to other sort of neo-fascist. Uh, parties, whereas this time it had a lot more things like uh, you know holding a conference where it sort of showed off its business credentials, uh, including a few other kind of former Berlusconi ministers and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, in order to sort of project the image of a sort of broader right wing party, but within which the the sort of old uh, neo fascist tradition is still is still somehow part.
3: So that brings up something interesting, which is, uh, you know, in your articles, part of what you have argued is that, uh, this, this rise was on one hand kind of a long time in the making and that the center right, uh, you know, supposedly more moderate or supposedly, you know, parties that were supposed to be like a moderating force actually enabled and helped accelerate the rise of the far right. Uh, so how exactly has, has this played out over the last couple of years?
2: Well, um, as if there's this coalition of these uh, three right-wing parties, and, you know, the first time they went to government together was already in 1994. Uh, Berla- Silvio Berlusconi, the, you know, the billionaire tycoon, often, you know, compared to Trump and so on, uh, he he kind of gave, his, he gave a speech in 2019 where he said, well, you know, in the 1990s, I brought the fascists into government. He actually used the word fascists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I constitutionalized and legitimized them. I sort of brought them into the tent. Um, but over time, uh, he, you know, while he had a dominant position uh, in the right-wing coalition in the in the nineties and two thousands, uh, that's kind of ebbed, uh, particularly in the uh, post two thousand eight crisis period, uh, partly uh, because Berlusconi has often gone into a sort of. Um, broad tent or, or technocratic governments which have sort of undermined his hold on the right uh, and, and then turns terms of push voters towards the further right uh, options you know we saw uh, Matteo Salvini's Lega even before this was took over the leadership of the right wing from Berlusconi um, but then also I mean I think there's a strange kind of rein, re, uh, reinvention of Berlusconi in recent years as a kind of cuddlier and more moderate uh, figure, which is rather strange for anyone who remembers the 2000s. Uh, it bears obvious comparison with the, um, the way in which George W. Bush uh, how his legacy has been sort of reinterpreted by parts of the US uh, sort of centrist and center right uh, in in the wake of Trump in the sense that a figure who was previously seen as as uh, extreme and 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 as uh pushing uh, away from the the more the imagined more moderate traditions of his party uh, then in turn becomes the 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 golden age who was longed for um, but yeah, I mean, Berlusconi's governments played an important role in questioning the kind of anti-fascist identity of the Italian Republic, uh, in focusing policy on on harsh attacks on immigrants, uh, and in appointing former uh, fascists to ministerial roles.
1: You know Italian politics better than most. You know Maloney herself. Is this fascism? Is this a neo-fascist authoritarian party that's about to take power?
4: Absolutely. It's a neo-fascist who, uh, she herself was an activist, a militant in a neo-fascist group when she was only 15. She never changed since then. she has been elected a week ago and she's already threatening to sue journalists, critics. Uh, I mean, I debated her on multiple occasions. She denied that fascism exists, but she never disavowed her fascist base. Her brother-in-law, Lolo Brigida, who happened to be also a party member, her right hand, but also in charge of the reforms, built financed mausoleums, crypts to fascist generals who committed war crimes, who committed atrocity. Her party celebrated fascist general who covered up massacres in Italy. People died in Italy because fascists bombed uh, across the countries from the 70s on. They covered up and they celebrated that. She endorsed extremist policies. She thinks that the LGBT community, immigrants, minorities are a threat to traditional identity. She called herself Christian. That means anybody that is not Christian somehow is a threat. It's an existential threat.
1: Following Maloney's election, you tweeted about a video that she shared back in August, which appeared to show a woman being attacked, raped even by an asylum seeker, pretty gruesome stuff. You also pointed out that her father, who is estranged, she hasn't seen him since she was a child, was a convicted drug trafficker. I think you were making the point that people shouldn't be uh, conflated with other people. Maloney responded to that in a post on Facebook, appearing to threaten a lawsuit against you. Have you been contacted by her lawyers? And do you see this as her trying to silence journalistic
4: criticism? Absolutely, this is typical fascist politics. She's been trying her 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 people, her fa- the founder of her party, Corsetto, but also her brother-in-law on multiple occasions threatened me with lawsuits, but also threatened other journalists who currently are living under police protection. Mahdi, the person who broke the stories about Meloni's family financing these crypts, these mausoleums, the fascist general is Paolo Brizzi. He lives under police protection. He was threatened to be sued on multiple yeah. occasions. But in my case, because I'm black, the only black, the only Muslim voice on Italian television, she singled yeah. me out. Coincidence. I'm not the person that broke the story about her father. I simply suggested that nobody should generalize her own father was a drug trafficker. It's not, she's not to blame, but she's blaming and demonizing, criminalizing all yeah. immigrants. She used should- me as an example to silence everybody else.
1: I should point out that she and her party publicly, officially disavow fascism, even though she is on record praising Italian fascists from the Mussolini period. And she has spouted a version of Great Replacement, a version of Great Replacement Theory. Watch, Great Replacement Theory is very popular in America, thanks to Tucker Carlson, Fox. Um, Let's talk about the warm embrace Maloney has received from conservatives here. What does that say about the GOP?
5: I mean, fascists flock together, right? The only difference between male fascists and Italy's Maloney is lipstick. She wears pastel colors. She wears sneakers. She wears lipstick. She smiles. She's a mother and she's a fascist. It's a concept called gender washing when you use women to soften the image of an authoritarian, but remove it's the same. There is a reason why Steve Bannon has allied with her for years, why he praised her. There's a reason why CPAC. May the CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, invited her to speak in 2022. They also invited Viktor Orban of Hungary, who has praised her. Also, Ted Cruz praised her. Tucker Carlson had Car- uh, Carrie Lake, who's running for governor of Arizona, who praised her and said, she's saying exactly yeah. what I want to say, right? So this is a right-wing alliance. And I also want to remind people that as a 19-year-old youth activist, she praised Mussolini. She said he was a good politician. He did anything he did good. He did good for Italy, uh, like aligning yeah. with the Nazis. And she's never disavowed it. At least Marine Le Pen disavowed her anti-Semitic father. Maloney has never disavowed in any way, shape, or form Mussolini. What do you think she is? Let's play taboo. Fascist.
1: So a lot of people watching this, Dean, will say, oh, mm-hmm. liberals, leftists, they call everyone a fascist, even though we're talking about someone who specifically runs a party that's descended from the post-fascist party of 1946. Um, I would say that some in our own industry, Dean, as I pointed out in my commentary before the break, they also want to play down the F word. There's a lot of like, let's calm down. She's not so bad. I feel like it's 2016 all over again, Dean.
6: Very much so. And I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe you talk to these people in the media every day. What is going on in their minds that they feel like they have to whitewash it or both sides? Yeah, Edward R. Murrow famously said, there are not two sides to every story. And I wish more in the media would take that to heart. The idea, And I remember writing an article a few weeks after the election saying that Donald Trump was plotting a coup. And I had a pushback by people going, you're outrageous. How dare you say that? Yeah, and then same. in more recent times, use terms fascist. Same. I think I think part of it, Mehdi, like you did in your tweet, we have to explain what that means because people think it's like we're doing a mirror of the right, saying we're socialist. We have to explain what fascism. It's an enemy of democracy, and its essence understand that. Yeah, it's embracing violence. It's about pitting people against each yeah. other. It's destabilizing institutions. institution. But it's the enemy of democracy. Um, if nothing else, you take away from me, enemy of democracy. That is fascism. That's what these people are about. Well
1: said. Well said, Dean. Ruler, this idea that you are the enemy of democracy, you're the enemy of women's rights, you're the enemy of minority communities, both immigrants and gay and lesbian, transgender communities. You see that in Italy. You see that here in the US. There are some commonalities, ruler. And then you see Iranian women protesting against their own authoritarian, anti-democratic government. And you wonder... How much credibility do some people in the West have to be standing with those Iranian women, given what's happening in our own countries? I look at authoritarianism globally and I wonder, we have to fight it everywhere, do we not?
4: Absolutely, Mahdi. But also, we have to understand this is a global movement. Uh, we go back to Maloney. Maloney in 2018 said on video, I repeat, on video, that she actually supports uh, the, the Hezbollah militias, she supports uh, Assad, she supports Putin because somehow they are defending Christianity in Syria. This is what she said. In that contest, she also said that she endorsed torture because it's a good tool for law enforcement so they can defend themselves. This is what she says. So when they are whitewashing her in our national media, they're actually, that's what she craves the most, legitimacy, that's what she wants. She wants to be normalized. The way that fashion creep globally and take over is by being normalized and by making it socially acceptable. And it is dangerous to minorities. This woman actually is the only party, the only leader of a party in Italy who is a woman who voted against women's rights, especially equal pay.
0: Audiobooks may have started out as an accommodation for the blind, but of course now millions more benefit from the ease and convenience of audiobooks, and you may not need me to convince you about audiobooks, but I do want to convince you to switch and start getting your books from Libro. By far, the best way to purchase audiobooks is by subscribing to an audiobook club for a flat fee to get one book credit each month, plus a discount on any other purchases. And this deal may sound familiar as the audiobook arm of the big box store in the sky, offers just such a plan, but while they are trying to squash the little guy, Libro is explicitly fighting for the independent booksellers. For just one example, Amazon works to sign exclusivity deals to lock up books from big name authors to their platform, which prevents indies and even libraries from having a chance to compete. I mean, competing with other businesses is one thing, but keeping books out of the grasp of libraries is downright unethical. On the other hand, Libro is a special-purpose corporation designed to share their profits directly with indie booksellers in partnership with Bookshop.org. So it couldn't be more clear. Make the switch and join Libro through our link to let them know we sent you. Go to bestoftheleft.com L-I-B-R-O. That's bestoftheleft.com Libro. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for your convenience.
7: Talking about what happened in Italy this, you know, this past few days over the hundred year stretch, you see the patterns, you see what you call the rhymes of history. And in doing this book, American Psychosis, I saw the same thing in American history. We see patterns again and again that even we live through that we don't recognize. That, you know, the Republican Party and, you know, we're now having a debate about whether MAGA extremism is something akin to fascism. But the Republican Party for 70 years keeps having this Dance with extremism, you know, encouraging and exploiting extremism. It's happened all the time. What we see now with Donald Trump and the Republican Party is not a it's not a aberration. It's a continuation. And I was struck because I was, you know, reading up on the Italian uh, election uh, earlier today, and there was an academic in Europe uh, who was talking about the history, and he said, "What we're seeing in Italy." is nothing new. I mean, you make that point quite, quite obviously, but even in the last 50 years, the far right has always been there, starting at the end of World War to, and it has bubbled up and bubbled down, bubbled up and bubbled down. And now it's just emerging, but it's always been there the same way that I think we've always had a fringe far-right fanaticism here that the Republican Party has always tried to exploit to its own benefit, whether it was McCarthyism, the Birchers, white segregationists in this, in the sixties and seventies. And Donald Trump just made it burst out and it's interesting in Italy. You know, they have a multiple party system. So in Italy, the, the the fringe elements, the far right, the fascistic elements, get their own parties. In America, it doesn't work that way. We don't have multiple parties, but we have seen the expansion of the influence of these extremists within the Republican Party. The Republican Party acting like a coalition in Europe, taking them in to get power and juice to the extent that we even see. Donald Trump in recent days welcoming the QAnon movement into his Trumpist Republican Party, the way that the majority or the close to majority coalition in Italy has taken in and has been led by the fascists.
8: David, I was struck by the fact that you document over and over again these moments where what we consider to be the mainstream Republican Party has to confront how much they want to be associated with people who they see and movements that they see as toxic, anti-democratic, extreme, and in most cases, embarrassing. You talk about that with the John Birch Society, for example, and elements of the Goldwater campaign and the conservative media around that time. You talk about it with Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, uh, pre- as President Eisenhower, having to confront McCarthyism um, and the appeal of Joe McCarthy, both at home and in Wisconsin, where he was an incredibly towering figure, uh, but also in terms of the way he tapped into some real dangerous energy on the far right. And I feel like you've busted a bunch of myths in terms of these sort of self-serving histories where we've sort of told told ourselves left, right and center that the the Republican Party, the mainstream Republican Party, has effectively policed those extremes and kept them at bay um, until now. And in fact— I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but what I took from your book is that there are multiple instances in which the guys who we think of as the good guys, or at least the mainstream people, actually chose deliberately to keep cultivating those extremes, to keep those, you know, the QAnon movements of their time alive and agitating for the Republican cause.
7: You know, again, the pattern is obvious once you go back and look. There is not, not a single major Republican president or presidential candidate who did not embrace extremism to some degree. It waxes and wanes and some do, and some have done it more intensely than others, but it's always in part of the Republican playbook. Uh, a recent example that of course you'll remember, and most of our viewers will, would be John Boehner embracing the Tea Party. The Tea Party was an extremist movement that, you know, was arguing that Barack Obama was a secret socialist Muslim born in Africa, who had a secret plan to destroy the American economy so he could impose a totalitarian dictatorship. I mean, it's irrational the way McCarthyism was irrational and the way that QAnon is irrational. And John Boehner, country club Republican, he knew that, but he invited the Tea Party literally onto the steps of the Capitol for demonstrations, brought him into the party uh, because they helped him get elected speaker. They then chased him out, but he validated, and authenticated the Tea Party perspective. And like, you know, McCarthyism, the Birchers, or you go over to the fascists of Europe, there's a a core there. And the element that I see uniting all this is that they look at the other side, their political enemies, and they demonize and dehumanize them. They're they're subversive. They want to destroy their society. The McCarthyites believed there was a cabal that wanted to turn the U.S.- over to the Soviets, and that was being run by people in the U.S. government. I just described the Tea Party conspiracy theory. We know what the QAnon conspiracy theory is. And if you listen to what um, Maloney is saying, she's saying literally the other day. I, I, I saw her, her speech of hers. She says financial speculators—I don't know what that's code for—and woke activists want to steal our identity, our identities as Italians, Christians, and women and men, and turn us into. Consumer slaves. I mean, that's very QAnonish in a way. So, but it's all about challenging the other side, not a matter of policy disputes or disagreeing on whether it's abortion or tax policy, but calling them subversives who want to destroy the country we love, take away our culture from us. And the Republicans have played that game again and again and again. And I'm sorry, you know, we can't both sides this. There is no equivalent on the democratic side this is an asymmetrical political history and it's really, i mean the book you know describes this and i think it portrays the dark side of the gop for 70 years that the party itself has not acknowledged and that history and journalists have often not paid as enough attention to as they should but now we see it in, you know in full view because donald trump has made it center stage
9: Fernanda, you know, and I don't want to pigeonhole you because you are from Brazil, but I we want to take advantage of your knowledge and you've been following all this news out of Brazil, which on Sunday we saw the first round of their presidential election and even though former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, Lula of the leftist workers' party, received more votes than the far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, Neither candidate won more than 50% of the vote, so that means there will be another runoff election at the end of the month, and Bolsonaro actually ended up doing better than polls had indicated. Fernanda, you tweeted about how this felt like the most consequential political weekend in Brazil since you left your homeland in 1998. Brazil is the fourth largest democracy in the world, and you can talk about how democratic it is, or it's, you know, that's a big... Question. It's a young democracy. So, how have you been feeling about the election results and how can you put them into context for all of us?
10: Well, there's so much to unpack there, but I, you know, when I woke up this morning, I thought. Is there a map that shows, you know, kind of like the CNN maps that we see Wolf Blitzer, you know, showing this state went for this? Like, I wanted to know, you know, which states went for Lula and which states went for Bolsonaro. And then I wasn't surprised with what I found. Essentially, the northeastern part of Brazil, I come from the northeastern part of Brazil, the state of Bahia, and all these states in this region of Brazil are the poorest, neediest, and also blackest states in Brazil. The legacy of slavery and also the large influence of indigenous populations in this part is very present. The the miscegenation of Brazil is very much what defines this region. And the entire region went for Lula. He won every single state in that region. But then if you look at southern Brazil, Sao Paulo and the states south of Sao Paulo, also Rio, those were states that are more centers of business and uh, wealthier much more influenced by Europe, uh, especially the, the southern tip of Brazil, large German-Italian immigration. So they are a lot more white, as we understand white to be. And these states all went for Bolsonaro in addition to large landowning states, states where lots of the landowners yeah. and a lot of the land is. Yeah. So it really the result, what it shows is, is two Brazils. You know, this is a battle between the two countries that have always obviously coexisted, being a part of one thing, but they're actually fragments of one thing. That's not a unity, which is a lot like what we have been talking about here in the United States since... Trump got elected, although obviously it predates Trump, right?
9: Yeah, but this is the question I have. And Sabrina, you mentioned the future of democracy in the United States, (laughs) but also when it comes to Brazil, like Bolsonaro's already, he's already starting to set the stage for what quote unquote rigged election. Sabrina, you want to jump in because it seems like are we witnessing a Trump playbook in Brazil, or at least from what you've been following, Sabrina, just jump in and then Fernanda, give us your thoughts as well about this.
3: I mean, this is something that we're seeing, you know, right wing candidates throughout the world, not exclusively right wing candidates, but talking about, you know, voter fraud, um, you know, lack of trust in elections, uh, you know, the erosion of democracy. Can we rely on the results that we're seeing? So it's not surprising if we hear more of that from Bolsonaro in the coming days and weeks, I would say. But I would trust the resident expert here, Fernanda, on all things Brazil. (laughs) I'm the same way. But I just want, you know, you're Latin American. It's like me, you know, you follow it. What I can say is, though, it's obvious already from like seeing Twitter and seeing like Brazilian Americans in Miami. For example, that you know voted for Bolsonaro starting to question, like, "Mm, did Lula really win exactly? Like, or you know, are already kind of prognosticating about the runoff, you know, and trying to see how exactly votes will be consolidated for Bolsonaro to ultimately win. So, there's always speculation around it, and I think for months we've kind of been gearing up those that pay attention to Latin America. We saw some of the conversations with the Colombian election. Yeah. Now we're seeing it with Brazil. So I can expect a lot more of the same in the coming days.
9: Yeah. Fernanda, I mean, that notion of this young democracy and you're going to have this incumbent who Mm -hmm. he's already suggesting that there's fraud. What does that mean in the context of Brazilian politics for you, like given the history of the country?
10: Well, I was born in 1973, and it was only 12 years later that the military dictatorship that had installed itself in 64 ended in Brazil. So we're talking about a really, really young democracy, currently run by a president who has really taken a page out of Trump's playbook. Although I think Trump and his people also learned a lot from Bolsonaro in Brazil, and he's been using even some of the same language. There is an appropriation of the the yellow and green colors of the Brazilian flag, they are now representative of him. The word patriot, patriotism, has been hijacked to mean support for him and his policies. You have this idea that he is this God-sent candidate who came to save Brazil from doomsday, when in reality, there are a lot of questions about policies he's had with indigenous yeah. populations, with the destruction of the Amazon, with the large number of former members of the military who are now in positions of power in ministries running, you know, important agencies in Brazil um, without necessarily having come from that world and have the expertise required. So, you know, obviously for Brazil it means a decision about the kind of country that it's going to be in the future, the type of relations that it's going to have to a country like the United States that's currently run by a Democratic president. But one of the most interesting things I remember, I think it was sometime in last month, there was a story from the BBC that quoted both Steve Bannon and Patrick Leahy. So people from completely opposite sides of the political spectrum, both saying how consequential this election would be, not just for Brazil, but for Latin America and for the world. And I do believe that the fact that they are both paying close attention to it means that we should, you know, as Americans, as people who care about democracy, yeah. we should be paying attention because if it can happen in Brazil and whatever it is that happens, yeah. it can happen any place else. So I'm very worried. I'm just really very worried.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things and they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country, If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix... And that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast. So you can easily stream in HD and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globe-trotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the Internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left, You can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left.
11: Well, Noam Chomsky, uh, f- following up on that, the, uh, the the significance politically for Latin America and the world of uh, of a, a Lula victory, given the fact that we've seen now Latin America go from the early pink tide of the early 2000s, then there was a resurgence of right-wing government and lawfare actions throughout the region, and now we're seeing almost every major country uh, in uh, Latin America uh, voting in uh, left-wing governments. Uh, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, Ar- Argentina, Peru, uh, and Brazil, of course, is the largest country. This is a region with uh, no nuclear weapons, with no major uh, armed conflicts uh, uh, in the region right now. What would Lula coming to victory mean for the consolidation of uh, this, uh, this left-wing trend
12: in Latin America? Yes, you can add Chile to the list. Uh, uh, Brazil is, of course, the largest, most important uh, country in South and Latin America, and the direction in which Brazil goes is sure to have a major impact on these tendencies that you described. Of course, they're bitterly opposed by the most of the business world by the uh, international investment community. Uh, what happens in Brazil could be certain to have a large-scale effect on whether these this mildly left social democratic uh, tendency will continue to develop and evolve. That's very important on the international scene as well. It'll, for example, affect the character of the... Uh, Uh, BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, uh, India, China, South Africa, now Indonesia, uh, developing for independent, possibly independent force in global affairs. During the early years of the century when uh, Lula was in power, uh, he managed to uh, give uh, the BRICS uh, alignment a significant role in world affairs. In fact, Brazil became perhaps the most respected uh, country inter- internationally under Lula and his uh, foreign minister Celso Amorim. And if he returns to office, that could give an impetus to uh, the, develop- the further development of BRICS as a quite significant element in international affairs. That's connected with much broader tendencies, uh, much broader issues about uh, multipolarity and unipolarity in international affairs. Uh, the United States, of course, is working hard to maintain what's called a, a, a unilateral world order. Uh, other Elements in the world, uh, other components of the world are not going along with that. Uh, Ukraine is a central part of that issue. About 90% of the countries of the world are not going along with the uh, US UK position on Ukraine, which is basically uh, continue the war to weaken Russia and no negotiations. Uh, Even in Europe, like in Germany, that's not accepted. About over two, three quarters of the German population wants to move to negotiations now. Uh, All of these things are taking place in the background and what's happening in Brazil will have a significant impact on the direction in which they go. So there are many large issues at stake, also just domestically in Brazil. Uh, Brazil has extraordinary inequality, kind of like the United States in that respect. Uh, Enormous amount. It's potentially a very rich country. A century ago, it was called uh, the Colossus of the South. It's never been realized, part because of the avarice of the uh, wealthy sector, which has basically no commitment to the country. Uh, And that will move in one or the other direction depending on the outcome of this election. So there is quite a lot at stake locally in Brazil and Latin America altogether, as you mentioned, and even globally because of the role of the Latin American countries, and Moline, in and lead, in setting the stage for the, the next phase of global
13: order. turns out that Lula did lead uh, Bolsonaro after the election this past weekend. Uh, he ended up with 48 percent of the vote. Unfortunately, Bolsonaro ended up with 43 percent of the vote. Nobody broke the 50 percent threshold, which means that we are now primed for a runoff election on October 30th, uh, which is kind of a mess, Nick, for a variety of reasons. It means that a, um, a really, really uh, volatile situation in Brazil is now going to escalate because we're heading into this runoff. It also means that Bolsonaro has more support than what a lot of us hope that maybe he had or didn't have. Uh, he has also been prepped by such people as Steve Bannon and the people around Donald Trump in order to uh, carry out anti-democratic actions. And there's still the specter of a coup. Uh, Nick, bad stuff all around. Lots,
14: lots to unpack. You know, I'm surprised that you we have a the good friend of the breakdown. Mike Wendell is involved in the the Bannon thing uh, as well. We do. Was that on purpose that you wanted to leave him out and make him feel bad or just, uh, you know, well,
13: Mike Wendell, Mike Wendell is just sort of wandering from one room to another, squeezing his pillow and giving people money. Yes. I mean, he, he, he is he's sort of like a, a walking ATM to these people. So, of course, he. <laughs>
14: Well, you know, I, I tried. To, it's funny, you know. The the interestingly enough, the the polls had indicated that it wouldn't be as close, even though five percent is kind of a you know a nice solid lead yep. uh, for Lula. But like you know, that gives rise to uh, Bolsonaro to, to sort of accuse like the polls are always wrong. Everyone's lying about this. You see, I'm a victim here, and uh, he's he's certainly been priming the country. To either say that like only God is going to remove him or death, and uh, and I'm not willing to die. You know I'm not going to die for this. So you have to be very concerned because it, it sounds a little familiar,
13: doesn't it? It does. It does. And 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 real fast, let's go ahead and let's uh, let's listen to a quick clip. Uh, let's let's hear uh, Steve Bannon. And, and for context, for those who don't know, this is at one of Mike Lindell's. Um, one of his cyber breakdown conferences a while back. I you lose track. He does these things all the time. Basically, people go and get free food. He gives them a bunch of money. But it's Bannon sitting next to Mike Lindell. But who's hanging out with them? It's Jair Bolsonaro's son, who happens to also be a politician and a bit player in all of this. Let's uh, let's give this a listen.
11: Well, you see, it's just not in the United States, right, Steve?
0: Well, next October. Remember, thirty days. About thirty days before. This monumental midterm election, he's going to face his father, Yair Bolsonaro is going to
9: face
7: the most dangerous leftist in the world. Lula, a criminal, a communist and supported by all the media here in the United States, all the left wing media. This election
0: is the second most important election in the world, right? In the most important elections ever in South America. Bolsonaro will win unless it's stolen by guess what? The machines.
13: The machines and again. Here we are. This is the Trumpian playbook, which says very, very, uh, um, succinctly, if he loses, if, uh, Bolsonaro loses, then there's nothing else to believe besides the fact that this has been stolen by the machines. Uh, and, and, and I have to say, like, this is one of those weird mind bending things, Nick. Bolsonaro outperformed all of the polls. All of the polls. Like, this is actually a victory. By Bolsonaro. But they have to take that victory and spin it into a giant conspiracy. And they want both things at once, which is look how much better I did than the polls. But also, I should have more support than this. It was stolen from me. It is it is mind-breakingly stupid.
14: Well, we have to now look at like the other what was remaining of the percentage who now drop out of the race and now becomes a two-person race. Um, I mean, what are your feelings about what the rest of those votes go towards and if, if Lula's gonna be able to just kind of hang on to this lead
13: well so it looks like in a world um that makes sense that lula is going to walk away with this thing it looks like he'll probably end up getting i if, if i had to put a number on it and god knows that these numbers don't always mean anything anymore if i had to put a number on it i would say that lula walks out if if everything stays the way it is you put it in a vacuum sealed jar and just sort of move it on to october 30th i'd say lula ends up with percent, but. Wow. Here's, there's a couple of things that are happening here. Bolsonaro is going to gain momentum from this, right? The fact that he outperformed this, he's sending it to a runoff. Second of, uh, second of all, the lead up to this election, there have been people murdered over the lead up to this election. People are getting shot. People are getting stabbed. There are fights in the streets. There are all kinds of these aggressive uh, moments in which Bolsonaro's supporters are going after worker party, Lula's people, and, and hurting them to go ahead and use that conspiracy theory that we're documenting here, basically, they are going to believe that they're going out to defend themselves. And that means possibly more violence. That means maybe intimidation at the polls. So right now, I mean, this thing, it's its an etch-a-sketch that's going to get shook up. Mm-hmm. And the question also, and, and this is something, and here's a quick quiz for the, the muckrake listeners out there. Um, why did Lula underperform Yes, there are reasons why people like Bolsonaro. There's cultural stuff. There's appeals there. Nick, um, this communist leftist, right? Do you think that he campaigned as a leftist or do you think he campaigned as a centrist, Nick? Oh, I'm going to I'll go with centrist for 300, Bob. Yep, he most definitely did campaign as a centrist because he has sort of brought along a coalition of people. He, uh, and tell me if this sounds familiar to American politics, he didn't have much of a plan for what's going to happen in the future. Maybe some light taxing of the wealthy, but that's about it. There's no real massive change, right? It's, it's the same sort of conditions that we see here in America. So what's he going to do now? Do you go ahead and play conservatively, which we know oftentimes will go ahead and screw you in the long run? Or do you like let your flag fly and you talk about like plans and, and, and things to move the country forward? There's no telling what's going to happen at this point. But I, ha- I uh, the one thing that's for sure is there's probably going to be some violence and some radicalization that spills out of this.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with the Medi Hassan show highlighting the GOP and U.S. media either celebrating or downplaying the danger of fascism in Italy. The Jacobin show explained the right-wing coalition in Italy and how the moderates helped legitimize the far-right. The Medi Hassan show dove into the details of the Brothers of Italy fascist origins. The Rachel Maddow show looked at how conservatives in the U.S. helped accelerate the extreme right by legitimizing them starting with the Tea Party. In the Thick switched gears and looked at what is at stake in the Brazilian election. Democracy Now! spoke with Noam Chomsky about the election in Brazil and broader South American politics. And the Muckrake political podcast focused on the connection between the American far right, including Steve Bannon, and the election in Brazil. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Jacobin Show tracing a similar story of the far right party in Sweden getting their best election results recently.
3: What kinds of longer term changes to Sweden's economy and, you know, the welfare state and trade union movements may have come before this moment that could have precipitated the rise or helped precipitate the rise of the Sweden Democrats?
11: When we look at this
5: specific election, the shift between the left and the right was tiny, tiny, Mm. uh, less than a half percentage points. So we were already in a very tight situation.
0: And The Rachel Maddow Show did a deep dive on the history of fascism in Europe and the path the world is on right now.
8: Republicans here are cheering for abroad. And yes, I think it is easier to see when you can see when it has happened before, what this is descended from in history. Because no longer respecting election results isn't just about messing with elections themselves. It's about a different kind of governance, a different kind of power. If they do not want your vote to determine who is in power, that means they don't want to have to use power to try to meet
0: your needs. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, just a quick note that didn't get covered in the body of today's episode, which is the very strange connection between the Italian fascist party and J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. We talk about this in a fair amount of detail in an upcoming bonus episode for members, so if you're not already signed up, now may be the time for that. Uh, But in short... In post-Mussolini Italy, if you were on the far right, then you needed a way to differentiate yourself from the old far right. It just wasn't politically feasible to try to maintain that same system or same party, so they had to you know, pivot a little bit. So what they sort of consciously did was went looking for new sets of symbols and themes that they could latch on and there aren't too many things out there with more symbols than The Lord of the Rings. Now, the problem, as is so often the case, very often with the right, though not exclusively, is that they badly misinterpreted the meaning of the story. Tolkien, there's debate over whether he was a racist and white supremacist and that his books were, you know, an an analogy for separating the races. But, you know, my interpretation is that the bulk of the evidence leans towards him being an anti-racist of his era meaning you know it was the early 1900s sure he was probably racist about plenty of stuff but in a world of racists he was on the let's not be racist side of the spectrum of racism so anyway his, his books were almost certainly not intended to be interpreted the way the italian fascists interpreted them but you know what's new So if you didn't know, Lord of the Rings is full of lots of different species of intelligent beings. You know, it's a fantasy world, lots of species, and sometimes they get along. Sometimes they're mortal enemies. And the lesson the fascists took from this, the fascists in Italy in particular, was that separateness and specificity in groups is good. And they likened the difference between species in the Lord of the Rings to the different countries in Europe. And hopefully the lapse in logic here is obvious. The different countries of Europe aren't made up of different species. And to make that comparison is inherently dehumanizing to everyone. But still, one can sort of imagine that this opinion could be arrived at honestly. You know, what one need not be deliberately misusing that text to come to a preferred conclusion. Sometimes all it takes is a small amount of misunderstanding to come to a wildly incorrect assumption. Now, of course, there are going to be biases that play a role and, and maybe misunderstanding something fits more with your biases. That's all very true and is very likely uh, what happened. But, uh, to give it a, Totally different and yet similar example. Um, And and I I used yet another story from my own past in, in the bonus show, so I won't repeat that one now. But there's a good one from Muhammad Ali, of all people, that fits the bill here. As I said, this happens a lot on the right, but not exclusively. Muhammad Ali was a complicated dude, but he certainly had more friends on the left than the right. We can say that for certain. And he was discussing racism on a talk show back in the 70s and was asked about integration and interracial relationships. And he, at the time, opposed the romantic mixing of the races. And here's some of the reasoning he gave for that.
15: Why would you wanna do that? Because you know, because like I don't think, I don't think I'm any different from you, you see? Uh, yeah we yeah, we're much different. That's I mean I think society's made know, us we different. You know we're different. <laughs> we're all together. But society's different. made us different. No, not society. God made us different. No, no, we're just human beings. He made no, all of no, us. No. We all listen. Bluebirds fly with bluebirds, oh. red birds wanna be with red <laughs> birds. So listen, listen. Tell me when I'm wrong. Pigeons wanna be with pigeons. But tell me have when I'm wrong. We well have I, an well we must have intelligence. They don't have intelligence, but yet they stay together. We should have more intelligence than them, right? Buzzards are with buzzards, yeah. Buzzards are with buzzards. Bluebirds are with bluebirds. They all are birds. <laughs> But they've got different cultures. The eagles like to hang out in the mountains. The buzzard like to fly around the desert. Well, the bluebird pr- like to fly around the trees and the grass. The problem a buzzard mating with a sparrow, wouldn't there? What? <laughs> be certain... right, right, right. And that's we mean... have the problems too. No, I don't mean? see. I don't see. I don't see no black and white couples in England or America walking around proud, holding their children.
0: Now, to be fair, his answer does get slightly more nuanced than that as he, he gets into cultural differences, but the fundamental mismatch between species of birds and races of humans is as stark a misunderstanding as thinking of dwarves, elves and hobbits as being parallel to the inhabitants or citizens of the countries of Europe now i'm not sure what the lesson is here you know maybe there's some value in guarding against misinterpretation when creating art, lest it be harnessed for evil purposes that one never intended. But you know, that, that's, that's a, a burden that no writer or creator otherwise could, uh, you know, could fully take on, because if someone is intent on misunderstanding you, they're going to go ahead and do it. Or maybe it's that the fate of the world and our collective fight against fascism actually lies with teachers of literature and critical thinking. Again, that's a heavy burden to put on any relatively small group of people, but I don't know if if anyone's up to it, maybe it's the teachers of the world. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Brian for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to talk about the show, or the news, or other shows, or anything you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com.